Good morning. The scripture reading today is Psalm 111, which can be found on page 509 in your Black Pew Bibles. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Good morning to you again. My name, as Mark mentioned, is John, a member of the elder team, and this morning uh, we're going to get to open this book that we love to Psalm 111. <clears throat> the book of Psalms, actually, the word psalm comes from a Hebrew word meaning song, and while it sounds counterintuitive, uh, these songs, I think, uh, this whole range of songs, regardless of the particular topic they happen to cover, uh, for instance, you know, uh, the cries of the needy, adoration, thanks, pleas for mercy and help, pleas, pleas for refuge, or whatever, actually all are a praise to the Lord, particularly when they're offered in the gathered worship of His people. In essence, the book of Psalms is a hymn book of and for the people of God at worship. Psalm 111 is the first in a series of nine grouped songs, verse 111 through 119, and they're hymn of praise and acclaim. It celebrates God's great works and His goodness, particularly for His people, doing for them what He also does for us, making us to be His, caring for us, and protecting us. His great works show His unending goodness toward His people us. And certainly those are good reasons for gratitude and praise from us. In the original text, Psalm 111 is actually paired with Psalm 112, and both follow an acrostic pattern, wherein if we were to see them in their Hebrew, after the first words, praise the Lord, each successive line of the psalm begins with a successive letter of the, Greek, of the Hebrew alphabet. And while we won't cover it today, Psalm 112, if we had time for it, among other things, would help us see what life looks like for those living godly and grateful lives that praise the Lord. Psalm 111 today, the main topic is the steady goodness of God displayed in His works and His instructions 
aimed at his praise. So, God plans for our praise. He creates for our praise. He rules the world for our praise and saves us through the death of Jesus for his praise. Praise is where God lives. And that actually actually reminds me of a story I heard about a young believer who attended church for the first time shortly after being saved and baptized in Africa. During part of the service, they were passing the plate. She was a new believer, and this was an unfamiliar practice to her. She saw people taking money out of their pockets and out of their wallets and putting them into the plate. As a new believer living among uh, uh, poor people in menial conditions, she reached into her pockets and realized that she had absolutely nothing to offer, no money. As the plate was being passed down her row, the usher handed it to her, and she didn't know what to do with it. So she set it on the ground, and she actually stood inside it and spoke out to God, God, I don't have any money. Take all of me. How's that for praise and gratitude? Looking at Psalm 111 with you this morning, the the psalmist shows us four actions that he says we should take. The first one is acclaim the Lord. Second is acknowledge the works of the Lord. The third is apprehend the instruction of the Lord. And the fourth is act on the fear of the Lord. Acclaim the Lord, acknowledge the works of the Lord, apprehend the instruction of the Lord, act on the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you deserve hallelujah from our voices and from our lives. We come before you this morning as always needing your help to do this rightly and in ways that truly glorify you. Would you come to us this morning and guide us with the words of this psalm, your word, that we might become more like your son and live and speak and serve as his hands and feet and voices to all whom you put on our paths and in all the things you give us to do. Help and guide me to be your voice this morning. I ask for this for us in Jesus' beautiful and magnificent name. Amen. A few weeks ago, Pastor Mark brought us through Colossians 2, 8 through 15, and one of the key takeaways from that passage is that the Colossians had everything they needed in Jesus Christ, and so do we. Jesus isn't beginning to save us. He's done it. It is finished. And yes, you ask, but what happens if this or what happens if that in our lives? Jesus' people... Uh, don't have to worry about that question, actually, because us, Jesus' people, know where we're going, and we know we're safe when this phase of life ends. And more than that, more than safe, we will be exceedingly blessed and transformed with bodies that don't have any issues, and I really appreciate that. In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my house, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will also come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. So with the what-if question then answered, or all of them, what would the Lord have us do? Praise Him. Don't you think that you and I owe Him some praise for all that He's done for us? Our psalm today is full of wisdom and guidance on how to do that. So first point, acclaim the Lord. Acclaim the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and in the congregation. As in Psalm 146, which we heard last week, Psalm 111, verse 1, the psalmist says to praise the Lord, and emphatically under all circumstances is implied, praise the Lord. The word praise here, as last week, is the same word, hallelujah. This is what we're created for, glorifying the Lord. Maybe that's not how you and I are <clears throat> used to thinking about the purpose of our lives, but that's what's true. Think about how we see and understand the incredibly awesome works of creation, all of which God said were good and into which he placed a man and a woman made in his image and with whom he loved, spoke, and instructed in their Garden of Eden fellowship. But then, as we know, came the fall and the separation and ejection from that intimate fellowship and that magnificent garden, and so began the human replication of men and women who were supposed to image God, but instead are now marred, faulty beings who fall way short of their intended intended end, glorifying God. And that's where you and I were. But God, and that's a great statement, I love it every time I see it, but God did not leave us without hope. He made provision for our redemption. And as John 1, 10, or 1, 10 to 12 says so well, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Which means, when you and I are saved, God the Father adopts us and changes our identity from lost to found, from hopeless to hope-filled, from dead to alive, from loner to adopted son or daughter, and amazingly enough, to brothers and sisters of the firstborn Son, Jesus the Christ, and imparts us with His Holy Spirit to be resident in us. We're members of God's family. And what should be our response to that? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 1 also tells us that praise and acclaim is not just an individual thing. It's a family thing in the company of the upright in the congregation, the psalmist says. For the people of the Old Testament time, this meant the nation of Israel, God's chosen people for us because of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and our adoption. It means all of his chosen saved people, which we call the church, or better yet, the family of God. So if you have a relationship with Jesus by true and living faith in Him, you are part of His family. 
and also a part of the family branch right here at Redeemer. And so what is his word to us? Praise the Lord. Acclaim, extol, praise him when we're alone and when we're together. So, why the word acclaim? I chose that word because it's an expression of approval or admiration for something or someone, and it also means to be thankful for God's blessing in this case and declare that the good news of God, and, and also we should declare that to others and praise Him for the benefit of others as well as ourselves. It means to announce or proclaim with enthusiastic approval. So, my question, does our praise of Him, yours and mine, reflect enthusiastic approval? Does it? But look, <clears throat> praise the Lord, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean say some words or sing a song of, uh, with some words of praise in it? Well, well, sure, sure it does. But if we've been adopted by the Creator of everything, our Father in heaven, shouldn't I mess with us a little bit? If we've been made brothers and sisters of Jesus, shouldn't it deeply affect our lives and all that we do? Shouldn't we ooze gratitude and thankfulness even when we're in the midst of worldly hardships and trials and troubles and illnesses or whatever else life brings? Nick Allen spoke to that last week. He said, praising him with a hallelujah regardless of what's going on in our lives or around us. And since we know what happens after this phase of life, shouldn't we be living the way God says we should? And shouldn't that result in our enthusiastic approval of Him and our enthusiastic approval of His work in what we say and how we live? When Pastor Mark preached on Colossians 2, 6 through 7 a while back, one of the big questions he left us with was, what is my heart spilling out? Maybe you've wrestled with that or maybe you haven't. <clears throat> but what does your heart spill out? What does mine spill out? Remember, the heart biblically is the center of our soul. That's when it's spilling out, which it does all the time. It spills out our thoughts, words, deeds, and directs actions. So the real question is, do we spill out enthusiastic approval and praise of God as Jesus' apprentices and disciples or something else? And not just on Sunday morning either, when the psalmist says to those on this side of the cross to praise the Lord, he's saying, exclaim, extol, praise the Lord with how you live and how you speak and how you serve Jesus as his representatives, as his brothers and sisters. In other words, in everything, everything you and I do. And let's be certain you can't really acclaim what or, in this case, who you don't know. So, we should acknowledge the works of the Lord. And the psalmist tells us exactly that. That's our second point. Acknowledge the works of the Lord. And one way to know something about someone is to see what they do and how they live. If we want to know God, the psalmist says, we should look to see what He does. These verses seem to refer to the wondrous works of God, and which certainly include creation, creation itself, actually, and, it goes, and everything that goes with that. 
He also points to the redeeming of God's people, Israel, through the exodus, through the awesome and miraculous works like the plagues presented by Moses to the Pharaoh, the parting of the sea, and the destruction of the entire Egyptian army, for example. <clears throat> it was also God's presence in the cloud and the fire that led them through the desert. It was his protection and provision for 40 years in the desert, and then later enabling them to conquer and secure the lands he had allocated for them, called the Promised Land. Land which had to be taken from other nations in order to create God's nation and people, and the Lord enabled that as well. It was, it was and is his faithfulness to his promises and covenant, not just a while, but forever. In these verses 2 through 7a, the psalmist presents the things God has done, so we will acknowledge and consider them. Verse 2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. The word studied here means carefully pondered. Why does he say this? Well, for one thing, if you love the artist, you should study the art carefully. It may tell you about their character. It may tell you about their concerns. It may tell you about who they are and how they see the world. So the psalmist wisely says to the original readers unto us today, great are the works of the Lord. Study and delight in them. And it's implied because of who he is. His works will tell us very much about him. And they will show us why the imperative, praise the Lord, is so appropriate. It's not a suggestion. This is God who deserves praise from his people. In his commentary, Derek Kidner, theologian, Pastor, the, the Lord's works are sometimes his deeds, but more often the things he has made, for instance, the heavens and the populous earth. God's works, do you, do you and I study them? Do we delight in them? Does it result in our praise of him? During my study time, I found this picture from the Webb telescope of what is called the Pillars of Creation, a star-forming region in the Eagle Nebula. It's an awesome, and for me, magnificently awesome and beautiful picture of a little part of the universe, which is just a mere 42,000 trillion miles from Earth. 42,000 trillion miles from Earth. You get your head around that? I can't. But do you know who does comprehend it? God does. He made it. He controls it. It's well within his providence. And my friends, this is the God who decided that you and I should be part of his family. Praise the Lord? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when a psalmist says, great are the works of the Lord, who, who, and, who and what are we thinking about? Throughout the Bible, God makes it very clear that his people are regulated to remember his great works and just who he is. He told Moses, I am who I am. The great I am, right? Verse 3, full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. Here the word work is most likely referencing God's providential acts, 
Michael Wilcox in his commentary comments, while backdrop may be the universal and ceaseless work of the creator, the events recalled here in memory and liturgy are the deeds and wonders of the Redeemer. This is the language for what God did at the time of the Exodus. Remember, this psalm was written before Christ came and redeemed us, but understand what God did back then for the Israelites points to what he does in the time of Jesus and beyond. And moving on to verse 4 then, the psalmist says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Here, the use of the word wondrous likely modifies the word works, and as Kidner says, refers most often to the great saving acts of God. So again, this is almost certainly God's works in redemption and salvation history, and maybe specifically the Passover. Of course, for us, it also points to something we get to experience on this side of the cross, the great redemption, which results in our salvation. Verses 3 and 4 want us to acknowledge that everything the Lord does is splendid and majestic, and that He is gracious and merciful. God's redeeming works show us how much about His character and His Word we can understand. It's clear He is completely in charge of all things. Do not forget who He is and what He's done, what He is doing. Praise Him also for what He has promised to do. That would be restoration. Making it a little more personal, how about your salvation and mine? Do we remember Him for that? How about the myriad events in our lives that we should remember and praise Him for even when we're walking through hard things? My experience with bladder cancer a couple of years ago gave me many countless opportunities to praise Him. There was the blessing of the uh, medical team and a great doctor, an incredibly caring and loving team of prayer warriors around me, and particularly even the night before surgery with hands on. And it was the grace He gave in my talking with my Heavenly Father and Jesus about um, my mortality, the hard things, particularly if things didn't go well. And then, in my particular case, it was also a rather miraculous healing. So many things. Praise the Lord. You and I should remember who He is and what He's done for you, and, and certainly I do for me, but also what He's done with you. In verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Here the psalmist is showing that the Lord's grace and mercy extend well beyond creation and redemption and deliverance. He shows who he is by providing for physical needs. He's a good, good father to his children. The Bible is full of testimony to the Lord's provision and his grace from end to end. And while I could give you an incredibly long list, just think of the big ones we, re we remember right away from before Jesus, <clears throat> right? When, and after, water in the desert, manna, quail, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And the verse, of course, tells us to remember his covenant forever. The implication is very clear. If God remembers and thinks it's important, does that not imply that He would expect us, made in His image and adopted into His family, to remember His works, His covenants, and also think they're important? So, remember them. Remember all His works in general, and particularly what He's done for you and your family 
for example. You know, doesn't it lift you up when someone remembers your name and important things you've done, particularly those that affected them? So what moment in your life, what second of time, what day of the week, what month or year is God not sustaining and keeping you and me? Really, have you remembered him and his amazing, wondrous provision for you today? Today. Shouldn't he be receiving praises, thanks, and acclaim from you for that and from me? All the time in word and song and deed, but also in how we live. Shouldn't you and I exude gratitude and praise for this? In verse 6, he, sh he says that he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them inheritance of the nations. Here, the psalmist is expanding the span of remembrance as he refers to God bringing the people into the promised land. All of the land he gave them, as I said, came from other nations from whom had to be taken by his ordinance and his provision. Food and land are actually quite valuable displays of his power to provide and his faithfulness in doing so. He deserved and expected the Israelites' praise and acclamation for these things. Of course, for us, he's also revealed his power by sending his Son to be our Savior, to break the power of sin and Satan and death and judgment through Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection. Because of that, our inheritance includes living with him and all of his adopted family forever. Doesn't that make you want to praise the Lord today? The close of this section of Psalm 111 ends with verse 7a, the works of his hands are faithful and just. And as, as to the statement, um, at this point, Wilcock again comments on it. He says it might seem odd to describe his work in creation in moral terms as something faithful and just. But his work in redemption, however, is firmly placed in that kind of a context, is bound up with his promise and his covenant. God does what he does because he said he would and he can. He has made his name known, and he proves an experience to indeed be that sort of a God. In the words of the original revelation to Moses, I am who I am. What works of God have you and I acknowledged this morning? maybe even as a preparation for being here. How about something as simple like, thank you, Lord, for good sleep and bringing me into another day. If you've ever wrestled with your mortality, there's a lot of praise for that. Or how about a sunrise, a beautiful dawn, maybe a sunset, or maybe to have a Sabbath with your family. Maybe it seems trivial, but these things come because God has ordained them to do so. And that brings us to God himself. Just how casual are we about the God whose providence is over every part of our body, every part of our life, and everything in and of creation and beyond? Remember, his works isn't aimed as much as what he has done for you, although that's important. It's mostly aimed at you and I knowing him, who he is through those things that he does and he says, and if we know him, won't it get easier to trust him in all things? 
This brings us to point three. Apprehend his instructions. Apprehend the instructions of the Lord. And as we said before, another way to know someone is by what they say. And if we can know him in part by what he says, then we should apprehend his instructions. The psalmist tells us in 7b, as he acknowledges uh, God's works need to be um, seen, but, but then he wants to apprehend his precepts too, right? He's the, the grasp the meaning or understand and perceive something when he says that. 7b and 8, all his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And while Exodus and Israel's redemption from Egypt are in the background, so too are the precepts and instructions that the Lord gave called the law that he gave at Sinai. The psalmist wants us to see God's works and words are such that there is always harmony between them, between what he says and what he does. And Wilcock comments once again, all of it, whether law or promise, might be summed up together in the words spoken to Moses as a declaration of how things are to be. And notice that God's words in verse 8 also include, to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. As we glance over that just a bit too casually, let me restate what God's saying here. My laws and instructions are trustworthy. You can depend on them always. So you can actually do them in a manner pleasing to me, which would be true and trustworthy as well. Again, my laws and instructions are trustworthy. You can depend on them always so that you can actually do them in a manner pleasing to me, which would be true and trustworthy as well. The psalmist is telling us that praising and acclaiming the Lord is not just only with our words and our songs, but what? Our actions, how we live our lives. And praise and claim don't come out of thin air either. They come from what? Gratitude. This is also the theme of our study in Colossians when we go back to it. Gratitude is a natural response to what God has done, or at least it should be. Actually, if we are finding our gratitude, it will also help us steer clear of false teaching and deceit, which was an issue for the Colossians as well. A grateful heart is actually a genuine sign of health in the Christian life. A grateful heart is actually a sign of health in a Christian life. Gratitude should drive our praise. So, the question then is, is your life, is mine, praising and acclaiming the Lord out of gratitude? God's words to his people in Deuteronomy also show us a few reasons for the psalmist's point. Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10, he says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people, <clears throat> gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words 
so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and they may teach their children so. Verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. The psalmist is reiterating in a fashion that God redeemed his people so that they would bathe themselves in his precepts and instruction and walk in holiness before him, living under his word and doing what he said was righteous living in praise of him. I think the authors of a book called Christ-Centered Exposition say it well, such redemption magnifies his holy and awesome character. The Lord's works and the Lord's instructions reveal his holy and awesome nature. And until we stand in awe of him, we will neither understand godly, godliness nor desire to walk in it. So then our question for us is again, do we stand in awe of him? Or do we treat him and our understanding of him and who he is just a little bit too casually. Final point, act on the fear of the Lord. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. This verse makes no sense if we don't really understand what the, what the word fear here means really well. I mean, we, we should understand it. And Revelation 14.7 gives us some insight. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and the worship and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Isaiah, one of God's trusted mouthpieces as a prophet, understood it in Isaiah 6, 5, 6. Uh, it speaks to him when Isaiah finds himself all of a sudden in the awesome and overwhelming presence of the Lord. Verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah sees himself in the presence of the Lord. And what is his reaction? It's basically, I'm a dead man. Why? Because the awe of God's holiness and magnificence this is the God who can hold a nebula that's 42,000 trillion miles away in his hand. This is also the God who sacrificed his son so that you and I could be adopted as his children to live with him forever. Let's look at one more example in the book of Revelation where John also encounters this awesome and overwhelming presence of the Lord. <clears throat> Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Both Isaiah and John were God's men. They rightly responded to the Lord with a fear which borders on, or maybe is, terror. But this terrifying God loves them. And he shows them and us by taking their wrongly placed fear and putting them into alignment with him by his touch.
They belong to him. The fear is now awe. It's awe that comes from being overwhelmed by just who they stand before. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus by faith have been saved and belong to God as his sons and daughters because Jesus suffered the incredible pain but particular terror of being separated from his father that we would not have to suffer that same terror ourselves. The cup that Jesus bore had, among other things, our names and our future riding on him, successfully drinking it. And he did. So what should be our fear? It should be a recognition that the terror he faced instead of us, and it should drive us to our knees in reverence and awe that he would, he could, he would, and he did take that terror on for us, for you, for me. It should birth a true humility and gratitude in us, and if it does, it's at this point the psalmist tells us that the beginning of wisdom arrives for each of us. It also implies we have no wisdom, not real wisdom, particularly not heavenly wisdom, unless we get to that place. And, if he, and he tells us that if we practice getting and staying in this place of reverence, humility, and gratitude, for example, we will demonstrate a good understanding of how the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit want us to live. And if how we live our lives is not praising him, we're not living rightly. So let's be living rightly. And what does the psalmist tell us is the outcome of this living rightly? Well, his praise endures forever. Praise the Lord. Notice the last word forever. Derek Kidner once again points out that word is, or one of the other Hebrew synonyms that it, you find in the Bible, is, uh, dominates um, passages in which it finds itself because it reflects two aspects of his work already noticed. It's made to last... And that, being his, it's in his constant care. So, we are too. And just to be clear, if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus by a living faith in him, then the fear that will bring you to wisdom is to contemplate the terror of eternity without Jesus and with zero options for deliverance at the end of this life. Remember, he has the keys of death and Hades. Here from Luke 12, 4 to 5, he reminds us of this. I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Instead, learn from the psalmist to do what he says. Acclaim the Lord, acknowledge the works of the Lord, apprehend his instructions, and act on the fear of the Lord. Not the terror of fear, but the awe and the majesty, the reverential fear, reverential awe, that kind of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus speaks to that too again in John 14 he says if you love me you will keep my commandments and 1 Corinthians 10:31 the comment is so whether you eat drink or whatever you do 
do all to the glory of God. Doing that, living a life of praise and gratitude, remember, is not just attitudinal or mental thing. It's about praising Him with the use of our time and our talents, our spiritual, <clears throat> our spiritual gifts, excuse me, our resources and our assets. It's about how we spend our time, how we neighbor to one another, how we do our jobs, and how we serve in the roles that we have been given. It's about how we meet and talk with Him, that is, pray to our Father Abba in heaven. It's also about our stewarding of all of these things and our gratitude and generosity overall for His church and the work of His kingdom family right here. Through living a life of praise and all these things, God gets glory, God gets praise, He gets acclamation, and we become better sons and daughters of God. Thanks be to God. Praise the Lord. So, let's tie this up with some final words from the author of the Christ-centered exposition. A wise and godly life is sustained by maintaining a proper fear of the Lord. So, let us stand in awe of Him daily. Let us remember the holy reverence will lead us to humble and faithful obedience. And let, us remember, and let us remember that we cannot know this God rightly if we do not give ourselves to His instructions. We need biblical insight in order to know our Redeemer and Provider and to walk in His ways. So, how should we respond to this truth? Maybe we should be like the young African woman responded with gratitude and praise, God, you can have all of me. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I cannot think of a better way to lead us into a time of communion and to reflect on that last statement or, or maybe this one, remember who I am, remember what I've done, remember my laws and instructions are trustworthy. You can depend on them always so that you can actually do them in a manner pleasing to me. Communion is an opportunity for that remembrance. In a few moments, I'll pray for us and the musicians, servers, and prayer warriors will come up. And if you have trusted Christ in faith and depend on Him for your life both here and here now and forever, this family meal is for you. If that's not the case, then we want you to maintain your integrity and remain seated, respected by us all. We've all, we've all been in that place. Instead, consider the prayer cards on the back of the pews or ask someone to pray with you or consider prayer with one of the folks who will be over here under the windows in a couple of minutes to my left. They'd consider it a real privilege to pray with or for you. <clears throat> the way we normally take communion is here at Redeemer is you come up when you're ready. However, this morning we're going to adjust slightly to a different flow for communion. Our worship team has a contemplative song for us this morning. So we'd like you to ask, uh, we ask that you would sit, reflect, and pray for a minute or two before coming up and coming to the table. When you do come up, there'll be two lines right in front of me here, two servers here, two servers here, and, a, and two up in the balcony. Break off a piece of the bread, dip it into the wine, either in the stoneware which, which, where the wine is or in the glassware, which is juice. Over here on the my left and your right, there is also a single-serve gluten-free station 
two little cups is a serving, take them apart, one has the juice, one has the wafer. And remember, there are prayer team members who would consider it a privilege to pray with you today. So in thinking about communion, we remember the words. First Corinthians tells us, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this book that we love. It's so awesome. I ask for myself and my family, your family here this morning, that you will help us acclaim you, acknowledge your works, apprehend your instructions, and act on reverential fear of just who you are. Help us to increasingly know you in an ever-deepening relationship that keeps, you from, keeps us from living casually and instead helps us rightly and intentionally live in praise of you. Help us, your adopted children, to see you've given us what we need to live the godly life you want us to. Forgive us for our lame explanations of why we're not living that life that praises you. Direct your Holy Spirit to help us change that. Draw us more deeply into this book that we love, your word, and write what needs to be written on our hearts as you said you would, so that we can and will live and speak and serve as your sons and daughters, your adopted children, and then help us, Lord, as your family, to represent you well. And empower us to be your hands and your feet and your voice, Lord Jesus, such that we will in immense gratitude glorify and praise you with our songs, our words, our deeds, our prayers, serving you obediently as a way of acknowledging who you are and what you have done for us. Thank you, Lord. All praise to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now is the time for your contemplation and prayer. <clears throat>